So Daniel, the first question is going to seem very silly. Um, why are you interested in astrobiology? That's one of the biggest questions we can ask in science. Why wouldn't anyone be interested in it? But why did you particularly get interested in this subject? Yeah, uh, that's, a, that's a great question. And uh, in fact, astrobiology is really asking some of the broadest questions humanity can ask. Um, and I found that many of the aspects of the rapid development in astronomy that we are witnessing are really playing a central uh, part in answering these questions. And um, I found also many of the other aspects uh, very interesting. Um, so some of the key questions that astrobiology is trying to answer is, uh, is really where is life coming from? Wh how did it emerge? Um, and is there life uh, beyond uh, Earth in the solar system? and there are other stars, and finally, what is the future of life uh, on Earth? So that, that's interesting that it has a terrestrial and inward-looking component. So, I mean, maybe talk about that part, because that's a little more surprising, what, why astronomers care about the future of life on Earth. Um, it's, yes, I s it's, it's an important part of astrobiology, because uh, I think there are so many lessons that we can learn from the past evolution of life, um, and also the coevolution of life and Earth, uh, that is an obvious thing to apply for our future and better understand our future. It's also, I think, a very important component um, in astrobiology to understand how interdependent species are on other species uh, in the biosphere and also of the planet itself. So uh, we often think about planet Earth as completely decoupled, a stable environment in which Earth, uh, life can do whatever it wants to do. But in fact, uh, the reality is that life is very much coupled to the atmosphere of Earth, and so they interact uh, very, uh, very strongly. So our future really depends on uh, how we actually can uh, work with this biosphere in which we are part of. Um, of course, that's basically the, um, the component that directly informs us or helps us to decide our long-term strategy. But also from astronomy, we know uh, how stars and planetary systems evolve and know, we know that Earth is not as a stable environment as it may seem um, just based on human history. And this, of course, extends to the idea of the habitable zone, which is a sort of a strange concept anyway, but habitable zones evolve too, right? That's right, yes. And habitable zones are, uh, for those in the audience who may, uh, who may not know it, basically the idea behind a habitable zone is that if you have a planet, you would say move Earth closer to the sun, it would start to get uh, warmer and warmer the closer you go. And actually, you wouldn't need to go much closer if you would move Earth just by a few percent of its uh, closer to the sun than its current separation, you would start to make it uh, un in, uh, unhabitable. And the same way, if you would push it outwards, uh, you could push it a little bit further out, but soon it would become very cold. So that re uh, region, which is where the temperatures are just right for an Earth-like planet or on a Sun-like star, this is what we call a habitable zone. And uh, the habitable zone evolves uh, because the star uh, is evolving. All stars evolve slowly uh, when, you are, when they are in the what we call the main sequence during most of their lifetime. But at the beginning of their life and towards the end of their uh, life, there is a very rapid evolution. And the other thing you mentioned that's interesting, the phrase co-evolution of the, the planet and the biosphere, that, that can, argument can be reversed because that's in fact one of the ways we're going to look for life in the next phase of this subject. 
That's right, yes. So, um, terrestrial life at least uh, is shaping uh, Earth's atmosphere. And uh, Earth, if we look back in time, we would not really recognize Earth during most of its lifetime. It looked very different. The atmosphere was very different. Uh, the composition was uh, very different. And in fact, uh, if we really had a time machine and we could travel back in time, during most of Earth's history, we would not be able to really breathe uh, well because the atmosphere was very different. Life is shaping the atmosphere of Earth and uh, it's shaping it in a very uh, uh, fundamental, important way. And we can use this fact actually to look for atmospheres um, around other stars, planets around other stars with atmospheres that have an imprint from biological processing. And what is so special about, you're talking primarily about the oxygen, the one part in five of the Earth's atmosphere, what's so special about that ingredient? So oxygen is a very reactive gas and if we would just leave oxygen uh, on its own uh, and we would stop the biological production of oxygen, very soon uh, the oxygen from Earth would be removed as it's interacting readily with uh, fresh rocks that are exposed by uh, geological processes. So that's really a major thing for oxygen and the fact that we see oxygen is because we have biology that is actively pumping out oxygen. And oxygen is in fact uh, a poison for many, uh, many species, um, especially the anaerobic species that originally in the early years were the dominant life form. Um, for throughout slightly more than half of Earth's uh, history, there was very little free oxygen, if any, in uh, Earth's atmosphere. And the species that uh, lived back then, of course, did not require oxygen. And in fact, for most of them, it was a poison. So about 2.4 billion years ago, cyanobacteria started to produce uh, large amounts of uh, oxygen. And in about a period of about 200 million years, they radically transformed uh, the atmosphere of Earth. And that meant probably the largest mass extinction Earth has witnessed. Most of the species were wiped out by this poisonous reactive gas. This is something we now all depend on. So this is a, a, a sort of another, a, a grand scale version of natural selection operating with microbes. Yeah, there is, that's exactly right. I mean, it's, it was beneficial for cyanobacteria to switch to oxygenic photosynthesis, which can produce much more energy than the unoxygenic uh, photosynthetic uh, uh, pathways. But at the same time, it was providing probably a very strong uh, evolutionary advantage. They were basically able to wipe out their competitors and uh, gain a much larger foothold in the early Earth. And of course, even on today's Earth, we also know of a bacteria that metabolizes methane and methane. It, does methane have a potential role as an indicator of life? So basically, the, uh, you could use different uh, markers as biosignatures. This is how we would call a gas that is present in the atmosphere that uh, marks uh, life, uh, possibly, and methane is one of these possible biosignatures. One, basically the key idea behind these biosignatures is that the presence of these gases in the atmosphere uh, mark a disequilibrium. They mark a deviation from the equilibrium state of the planet. And in the case of uh, Earth, the oxygen is produced by biology and that's a shift from the equilibrium. And uh, methane uh, is uh, also, uh, in the terrestrial atmosphere, is primarily produced by biological processes, but also there are a couple of abiotic processes that can uh, produce methane and also um, 
oxygen for that matter. So we really have to understand a bit the atmosphere before we can just uh, blindly accept any of these gases as a marker for life. But some of these are uh, can be very suggestive, especially if they come in a combination. And so you're, what you're alluding to is the fact that, you know, in this game where this is probably the next stage in the search for life in the universe, um, the data is going to be complex. You have to model it. It's, there's not a single, you know, smoking gun tracer that will tell everyone in front page headline the next day. That's right. In, in Star Trek, there's a device called Tricorder, and that um, enables the Star Trek crew to scan for signs of life on other planets. Uh, remotely or even look for life uh, on a close distance but unfortunately NASA doesn't really have a, <laughs> a tricorder at place although you can buy copies and replicas from Amazon uh, but we, we don't even really know how such a device would work in the first place uh, detecting life and understanding whether life is there or not seems very simple we, we think that just by looking at an organism it is easy to tell whether or not it's alive but in fact many organisms are very difficult to organisms or not, it's very difficult to deduce whether or not they are uh, really living creatures. Even on Earth, we can find examples where it's very difficult to, to decide whether or not something is, uh, is alive, and there are border cases, and the most notable example are viruses, um, which then they cannot reproduce on their own, so you could argue, and many do, that they are not alive, because they do need other organisms to reproduce. And you may imagine how much more complex it is if you try to uh, do the same exercise on another planet hundreds of light years away, uh, potentially. So we really have, I think, uh, a chance to understand really robust major changes caused by life in these planets, su such as the oxygen in uh, Earth's atmosphere, a change that has fundamentally impacted the entire atmosphere of the planet and it's really a, a very robust uh, large-scale uh, impact of life. So people are of course now familiar with the cavalcade of planets, exoplanets and Kepler finding Earth-like planets and they might think that okay got dozens of Earth-like planets now soon have hundreds just go out and look for oxygen and find life so give a sense why this is a difficult experiment. Yeah it's so <coughs> detecting planet has been extremely difficult and really astronomers it was one of the holy grails of astronomy finding planets around other stars and it took hundreds of years of trying and different ideas to come up with the techniques and technology that enables us now just partly to detect planets and um, the vast majority of the planets that we have detected until now, and that's basically just in the past 15 years, the vast majority of these planets have been detected indirectly. That means that we haven't really seen the planets, but we just deduce their presence by their impact on the star. So an example is that you may look for a slight wobble of the star, and the stars would wobble because there is a planet orbiting them and pulling them around. But that even though we know that there is a planet there, it doesn't mean we actually have seen the planet, and if we haven't seen the planet, we cannot really uh, look for oxygen uh, in their atmospheres. So it's a very, very small fraction of the planets that we actually can, right now, uh, start to characterize in detail their atmospheres, and the planets that we can currently characterize in detail, they are still very far from uh, Earth. And these are, of course, the reflected light of a Earth-like planet from a Sun-like star is one part in a billion or hundreds of millions, and it's separated close to the star, so 
just making the image it alone is hard, let alone making a spectrum of it. That's exactly right. We really need special telescopes dedicated to do this really, really challenging task. Um, and it's it's often compared to the challenge of trying to characterize a firefly sitting on a light uh, house. And it, it in fact is a, it's a good analogy. We really are looking for a very faint source next to a very, very bright uh, star. Nevertheless, it's, it's not impossible to do. And uh, uh, we now have figured out ways uh, to suppress the starlight and look for faint sources, the fireflies around uh, that bright light. Um, what astronomers always need are larger telescopes, and this is an example of where you do need a larger telescope, because even though we suppress the starlight, those little fireflies remain very, very faint. And the current telescopes that we have, none of these have been uh, made uh, or optimized in any way for exoplanets exoplanet characterization. In fact, most of these telescopes have been designed before exoplanets were discovered at all. I'm speaking about mainly Hubble and Spitzer Space Telescope or the other large ground-based uh, telescopes. How does that, does that change with James Webb? Has that got some potential? So James Webb uh, is again a telescope that was really designed to study the high redshift universe or the earliest stages of the universe but it was a telescope in which during its design phase and construction exoplanets have been discovered and they got a more and more important role uh, in uh, in the mission and the mission is now providing very uh, exciting platform for exoplanet studies uh, the two areas where James Webb is probably going to contribute very significantly to our understanding of planets are the formation of the planetary system, so the baby planetary systems as they form. Um, James Webb will be uniquely capable of studying those baby planetary systems and try to figure out what are the components that make their way into the forming planets, uh, organics uh, and volatiles which are very important for life. In addition, James Webb will also be able to study uh, at least giant planets to uh, a very exciting detail. And in some exceptional cases, in a few cases, it may provide us uh, information about uh, more Earth-like planets. But most likely those planets will be still many times larger than Earth is. And what about, this may be a slightly discouraging subject, but what about uh, other missions from NASA, say? Because, you know, NASA has been the main funder of astrobiology, really, in the federal landscape. Uh, are there things on the horizon there? So it's, uh, there is a, an active discussion in the community, and that's a discussion that has been going on for a couple of years, in trying to figure out what is the best platform, how we should build the next big telescope that would be able to search for life. And, and, and this would be a, a purpose, mm -hmm. rather than James Webb, right. which is a general facility, this would be purpose-built for this, this tool. This, that's this right. These observations are so difficult that you do need to design the telescope for this measurement. It can also do some other interesting science, but the main goal is uh, has to be basically a, uh, the characterization of Earth-like planets and search for biosignatures because the measurement is so difficult. And NASA had, uh, and in fact, people affiliated with NASA and also the University of Arizona and a couple of other places have been thinking on how to design a, such an instrument for several decades now. It's not actually a new idea, but we now got much, much closer by knowing how exoplanets uh, look like, where they are located, how we, we can search for them. And um, there has been, in particular, one mission that has been 
actually designed uh, to some level and has been worked on for several years. That's the so-called tertiary plant finder mission. Uh, about nine, ten years ago, this was a major emphasis of the astronomical community too and the astrobiology community. But because of the budget realities, it just has been postponed. And uh, there are multiple uh, groups now um, advising NASA about possible redesigns and other pathways how this goal can be reached. And of course, astronomy is international in general. And is this a priority of you know European, South American, other astronomy communities? Is it going to be is easier to get the money together when you don't have to do it yourself? Right, yes. NASA and especially the European Space Agency has been uh, for decades partners in some of the largest space missions. For example, in Hubble, uh, Hubble is a space mission that is primarily run by NASA, but there's a very important and significant contribution, about 10% from the European Space Agency. And the Canadian Space Agency is also an important partner um, in the Hubble Space Telescope. And that enables the whole international community, also uh, beyond these uh, three space agencies, to participate in the exciting science. So it really merges uh, all the brains that are working on, uh, on Hubble science and combines them. And something similar is probably going to happen with this terrestrial planet finder mission or um, or its successor or the new incarnation of this mission as we get closer to it. It really is a challenge that is so grand that it's it really is meaningful to combine uh, everything that humanity can put into this mission, both in terms of intellectual capabilities and also funding. Funding is, of course, a very important component. And as we, but as we speak, this hypothetical mission, there's no launch date or no, concrete plan. No, the yes, that's that's exactly right. The tertiary plant finder mission. Um, there were multiple uh, working groups that uh, came up with different designs, but as the there was less and less money available in the projections, that mission was put on hold. The European Space Agency had a, a similar mission, uh, which was called Darwin. And um, also the two agencies developed these plans parallel. There was an idea to merge them possibly um, in a more advanced phase. Currently, given the budgets, most of these actual building attempts or design attempts have been put on hold. And there is more focus placed on characterizing the existing or currently known planetary systems and also developing technologies for uh, enabling a mission. Right. And that, and that's of course a, an important po point about a lot of parts of our field that the technology development is is coupled so tightly with what you can do scientifically that it becomes very important. Each, yes, right. It's it really is technology development is something that basically enables us not not simply enables us to do things we couldn't do before, but it also enables us to do things much cheaper than we thought we could do in many cases and. Uh, it, what always has happened in the past is that there were multiple groups, uh, scientists, but also uh, engineers and uh, instrumentalists who have been working together to push new technologies. And many of these technologies are not simply only useful for astronomy, but they are really useful for a wide variety of applications. Uh, you can think about all the satellite-based remote sensing applications. Many of these uh, technologies that we are pushing and uh, or jointly developing with other agencies are very heavily used uh, in the armed forces. Um, there also many of these are used in te uh, medical imaging, for example. So these are really uh, 
these technology development programs. These are really programs that provide on long term uh, really significant uh, results and technologies that are widely used. And they also enable us to do things uh, that we could not afford or we wouldn't know how to do them. So let me let me get back to the idea of habitability. So th I mean, there's a, this traditional concept that you describe, and um, you know the Earth is a, the prototype, of course, as it should be. But I think the solar system is telling our solar system is sort of telling us that there's something called this cryogenic biosphere, the exomoons of large planets, and there are plenty of places where if life just needs energy, water, and organic material, they exist outside of an Earth-like situation. So how do we think about that in larger scale? Or are we just, we just so limited in what we can look at that we have to stick to the Earth-like planet around a sun-like star? Yeah, there's, that's an excellent point. Yes, the habitable zone, which receives a lot of attention in terms of the habitable exoplanets, is a very important guideline, a uh, guiding concept for studying those systems. But it really doesn't mean that this is the only location where we would expect or could imagine life uh, around other uh, stars. And a great example are the icy moons in the outer solar system, for example, Europa or Titan. These moons uh, are, by any definition, they are well uh, outside the habitable zone, but they, and that means that they don't really have enough energy from the sun to sustain an Earth-like uh, environment. However, they do receive, for example, in the case of Europa, energy from tidal interactions uh, with Jupiter. That means that uh, during its orbit, uh, Europa is getting a little bit closer and a little bit farther away from Jupiter. Uh, and as it also turns around, there is a tidal flexing. It's, uh, Europa is um, squeezed, basically, and uh, as it moves around, and that provides additional heating. So it's heated from inside, from its interior, and that allows it uh, to be actually warmer than it should be, significantly warmer, producing uh, probably an uh, uh, underground or under ice um, ocean. So these are environments that are quite interesting in terms of searching for life, and they may host life that would be probably different, significantly different from that on Earth, and this is an environment that is exceedingly difficult to study, even within our own solar system. So there are ideas to send probes to Europa and some of the other icy moons. And we have recently landed on Titan. So uh, these environments can be studied uh, with great difficulty, but they can be studied in the solar system. But they are really beyond what we can uh, even conceive um, to study in other solar systems. So in other solar systems, we would focus on the most Earth-like environments, while in our solar system, we can send planetary probes and explore some of these environments uh, uh, as much as we can. Well, let's. So that's a sort of thinking out of the box on habitable zone. Let's talk out of the box on biology itself in the, the biological part of astrobiology. I mean, we we might look for metabolic processes similar to those that happen on the Earth. Oxygenic photosynthesis, of course, it's a great biosignature. Is that too limiting, or do we know that life always has to work this way? Or No, we don't know, and life is, has been... I think <coughs> the two perhaps most exciting areas in astrobiology, at least from my viewpoint, have been the exoplanet discoveries in the past few years, and the other has been what we learned about life, especially extreme life and the basics of uh, biochemistry. And 
a very important part of astrobiology is understanding uh, the extremes of uh, Earth's life, terrestrial life, and the inner processes that enable life. And we have seen an incredible uh, richness and variety in terrestrial life that is far exceeding what biologists would have expected and uh, uh, probably 15, 20 years ago even. So we find life in almost every single terrestrial environment where we could possibly imagine to have life and even some where we, we, we can't. And so some of the examples that are uh, in the headlines from uh, almost daily are uh, finding life um, in the driest deserts um, on Earth, for example in the Atacama Desert, uh, which has it's one of the driest places on Earth. It's exposed to very strong UV radiation and uh, has almost no moisture and also no nutrients in the soil. Nevertheless, we do find uh, thriving bacteria colonies um, in that environment or even in the coldest environments. We find life, of course, in highly acidic pools um, or at the deepest uh, ocean floor and even inside uh, the lithosphere, inside the uh, rocks. Or no another headline from a year or so ago, the, the life that uses arsenic. So the uh, whole idea of what's toxic to life is an interesting concept. Right, yes. It, it really is... Um, life has proven to be extremely uh, versatile and very flexible uh, on Earth. Uh, there are the, the limits of terrestrial life is, um, is a frontier in astrobiology. There are many teams focusing on trying to understand what are the limitations uh, in basically many of the key parameters. So um, salinity, oxygen content, temperature, uh, nutrients, uh, radiation exposure. Um, and we find that we can extend significantly the uh, range of life. And that, that is an excellent uh, motivation behind searching for life also in extreme environment like the icy moons uh, of the outer solar system. And of course even that is not jumping out of the whole box because that incredible metabolic diversity and the microbial diversity of the earth is still one genetic template, one version of life. And I suppose people say that like Titan the chemistry is different enough it might be at a, a completely different basis if it were possible to have biology there. That's right, yes, in Earth, I mean, it's it's always amazing to me that if you look through basically all the species, everything that we know, it really is all interrelated. It really basically is using the same genetic uh, template and the same um, biochemical machinery to produce and replicate itself and carry over the information. Although almost every other property of life has changed, that very basic, that little core uh, has remained constant throughout uh, Earth's uh, history, at least as much we know. There are ideas that there may be a, what people call a shadow biosphere. Uh, the idea is that this uh, genetic uh, alphabet that we are that all biological systems on Earth that we know are using is just one possible solution of the many possibilities that could have worked. There are uh, attempts uh, and actually successes to use uh, to extend this alphabet and make synthetic uh, genetic code, which can also be shown to, to work reasonably well. So there are other possibilities. It's nowhere written that this exact setup is the optimal or the right setup. So people rather think that this was an experiment frozen in time. Um, people often think that there were multiple different um, 
types of life that may have developed in the early years and one of them the most successful has actually as soon as it was successful enough to uh, robustly replicate and um, uh, diversify it was able to overtake earth and basically all the uh, the competing life forms uh, were pushed to extinction and this is a of course a very difficult hypothesis to test given how little traces we have of the early earth that's right. Basically, life is extremely good in using everything that is available. Uh, so we expect that all the other uh, alternate life forms would have been eradicated. Uh, so we don't expect to find anything from them unless they somehow stayed alive. And that's the idea behind the shadow biosphere. There are attempts to try to find in some isolated pockets, um, in some really extreme environment on Earth, some other type of life that that may be lurking in the dark that we have not seen until now it's a very difficult hypothesis to test we never know when we checked every other every location where it's possible so it's difficult to come up with a negative result and say that we have in fact mm -hmm. not found anything so we learned that there is nothing like a shadow biosphere on earth but nevertheless it's a very exciting uh, possibility that in fact if we do find uh, a life form uh, it would be of course extremely I interesting for for us now it's not a full version of that experiment but uh, it's very exciting that i think just in the last year the russians have broken through to like vostok which is a sort of was been sealed off for tens of millions of years i think from the that's this maybe not yeah. enough to expect some alternative but there could be bioorganisms that are unknown elsewhere yes exactly and that's also an example of independent evolution so we would be able to once that lake is actually properly explored and we have uh, samples that are not contaminated also by the um, outside world uh, properly sampled we may be able to find examples of independent evolution uh, from mm -hmm. Lake Vostok it's perhaps who knows we, we may be able to find uh, an example from a shadow biosphere from mm -hmm. from that lake w what is difficult about finding something that is really not like our own uh, well-known uh, biosphere is that we don't really have the right tools to do that so all the biodiversity studies um, that are currently carried out for example when they travel across the ocean they sample water at different depths mm -hmm. uh, in different longitude and longitude and they use uh, DNA sequencing to identify the diversity, the biodiversity as a function of location and depth, all of these are only sensitive to organisms that we know. We would not be able to find, even if our bucket was full of different life, we would not be able to recognize it probably. So these are, and basically it has to have nucleic acids and you're sort of amplifying DNA That's right. to, yes. to, to detect it, these little microorganisms. That's right. The biodiversity studies usually use a small fragment of the DNA that is highly conserved throughout evolution. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is basically um, in an iterative process amplified so even very small samples can be amplified by mm -hmm. millions of times and then can be detected. Mm -hmm. But it already basically lies on one small f uh, fragment, In actually in most cases that's an RNA fragment, that is, um, is present. So now the other interesting thing is one may think uh, that you may just scoop up you know, some dirt from the Atacama Desert and you may be able to grow your own uh, microbes and find out if they look just different. But the surprising fact is uh, that biologists can um, grow only less than 1% of all the microbes that 
that you could collect. So if you go to, you scoop up a little dirt and you try to culture those microbes in it, you, more than 99% of those will die, no matter what you try to give them as nutrients or what it, uh, uh, conditions you try to keep them in, we just always fail to culture them. So we really just see a very small fraction of the uh, biosphere. Which is, and that's a sobering thought that as we're busy looking for life beyond Earth, we don't fully understand terrestrial biology. That's right. Yeah, it's it's an extremely complex process. I mean, we understand, of course, all the or most of the <coughs> main processes involved in biology that are shared. But in terms of the diversity, the complexity of biospheres. Uh, that is really fully unexplored and I think provides a really exciting intellectual adventure. So let me finish with, uh, again, another big picture. You know, the Drake equation has been used for decades to organize the information. I think Frank Drake even said it's a container for ignorance. But, <laughs> but I mean, excitingly for us, the first few terms are, are being defined by astronomy, uh, which sort of leaves the back end of the equation to be an issue. What's your opinion of SETI? Is that a worthwhile thing to do? I, yeah, SETI is a very exciting uh, enterprise. And the word, and I think it's a. Uh, let me give you a pro and cons on this. So, of course, the pros are are pretty obvious, right? If we do find actually we a message, or even maybe not an intentional message, but just a, a radio signal that indicates the presence of another intelligence in the galaxy, that would be one of the most fundamental discoveries of uh, human society. It would really be a pretty fundamental discovery that would provide us with insights about our location, you know, in space and time, um, and would give us a different perspective on who we are and where we come from. Uh, so that uh, it can also have possibly further advantages. I mean, you could imagine that that actually that kind of messages would enable us to develop new technologies maybe even communicate with them if we could actually decode the message response and maybe it wouldn't take thousands of years if we find a civilization very close to us that would be great um so th this is a very exciting uh, and potentially really high payoff uh, uh, enterprise the problem is of course with seti is that it has been tried there's just so much left to do and it's very difficult to know what would be the end result Wh when is the experiment complete so many, this, and you're talking about yeah. something fundamental in science is you have to be able to explain a null result. Y you That's couldn't right. get you exactly. couldn't get money out of the NSF or anyone unless you said what it meant if you found nothing. Yes, yes. So you really want to design any time when you do science, you want to design experiments that are really well defined. They have a clear question, and in the end, ideally, you get an answer, yes or no, or you get uh, you measure something, and um, Questions that are defined in this way traditionally in science have been the ones that were really uh, providing reliable progress. There are some other questions, of course, discoveries and chance discoveries that were very important, but in terms of uh, programmatic science, you do want to define experiments. And a difficulty with SET is that the parameter space is just so large and our ability to scan it uh, in terms of, and I'm thinking about the, how many stars there are in the galaxy, what are all the possible frequencies and polarization directions and um, type of encoding you may look for, 
That parameter range is so huge that it remains very difficult to scan a large enough fraction of that that we could interpret the result unless we find something. So that, that has been uh, one of the challenges that SETI research has been facing, but nevertheless it hasn't encouraged many people and there's a lot of excitement also in part reignited by Kepler uh, to continue and extend the traditional radio wave uh, SETI research and there are exciting projects run at Harvard and Berkeley for example that use optical telescopes to look for optical SETI. It's a new type of uh, SETI research. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's great. Um, so I got to finish with an obvious question of what does your gut tell you? Or is how abundant is life in the universe? You, you don't think we're it, right? Yeah, I. Yeah, I. I, I would, let's you not know, even, well yeah. separated into <laughs> the microbial or any kind of life and maybe advanced life. What do you think about life of any kind? I would. Yeah, I would guess that uh, based on what we know, probably at least microbial life. I, uh, would be quite, I could imagine it could be quite frequent in the galaxy. We now know that every star basically has multiple planets. Many of them are in the habitable zone. Many of the planets are similar in size and probably in other properties to Earth. So Earth, the more we know about exoplanets, the less Earth looks, the less exceptional Earth looks. So based on that and also the extreme conditions in which we find life, I think it's a good guess that microbial life could be very frequent in the uh, galaxy. The big question then after is whether or not intelligent life is common and that's that really depends I think on how good is intelligent life in uh, ensuring its long longevity, longevity. So how long will the human civilization last? Is it comparable to the timescales you need to send a message to the other side of the galaxy? If yes, then intelligent life should be uh, frequent. If not, then uh, probably not. So you're alluding to an important thing that in astrobiology the real estate of space is the one we're familiar with, but there's also the real estate of time which is just as important in terms of what you might detect and the stage of its evolution and so on. That's right, because the finite uh, speed of light that we can communicate with, it can take hundreds of uh, lights to send messages even to the most nearby stars. And if we want to communicate across uh, the galaxy, we are speaking about lifetimes, about uh, um, travel times about a hundred thousand years, especially for sending messages there and back, which would mean the real communication. These are timescales that are much, much longer than uh, human civilization or really the timescale over which modern humans have existed. So in order for us to be able to, we could technically communicate with civilizations across the galaxy, but the question is, will we live long enough and will they live long enough? Okay, well, I, I think that's an optimistic way to end. So we, I hope we do live long enough, but I think it, you're pretty confident, it, it sounds like, that we're the, the agenda of detecting microbial life is maybe a, a few decades agenda that we might succeed in. I, yeah, I definitely hope. Yeah. I think that once we have design the next telescope that is really geared to do this. I think we, and if we do our job right, I mean that telescope should be able to uh, detect microbial life and I would be surprised and disappointed if we wouldn't find several examples before right. I retire. Right. Okay, that's great. Thank you, Daniel. Thanks.